we're going to be at it again this morning. Um, our subject is uh, Encounters with Jesus. And so we're looking this semester at uh, various um, moments where in the Gospels, those are the first four books of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that tell the story of Jesus' life, basically. We're looking at various moments where Jesus meets real people with real names and how he interacts with those people. And this morning we're looking at a a fairly famous story in John's Gospel, John 4. This is the second encounter that Jesus has. Um, and I want to do this this morning from the angle. I want to talk this morning about the, um, about, uh, the issue of security in our lives as men. And I'm going to start with a quick story. There is, this is true not just in Portugal. There are other monasteries like this as well. But There's a monastery in, in Portugal in, um, uh, that's perched 3,000 feet um, above sort of baseline ground, where the, you know, the ground is on a cliff, 3,000 foot high cliff. And the monastery is only accessible by a ride up in a, a woven basket. So you get in this basket and you have these, I would assume, strong monks or strong hired hands who literally, by rope and pulley, pull you up in the basket. And the story is told of a, an American tourist who visited the site and said, you know, I'm going all in, got, got in the basket, about halfway up, 1,500 feet in the air, looking over the uh, cliff. He notices that the rope is maybe not OSHA approved, right? It's a little bit old. It's frayed. And so um, hoping to relieve his fear, he yells down to the monks, how often do you change the rope? And the head monk yells back, whenever it breaks, whenever it breaks. <laughs> Now, I'm sure that that wouldn't be a very satisfying answer for any of us if we were the ones in the basket uh, that day. And I just leave with that because it's just true that we have, I think, an ingrained, deep-seated desire for security, a desire to feel safe. Um, In fact, uh, think about all the ways that that desire expresses itself in our our modern world. Now, I'm sure some of you have, like, security alarms. Almost all of our cars these days have some sort of security devices on them. You probably lock your doors at night, but think even bigger than that. Think about the money that we spend on insurance. Uh, The fact that we send uh, satellites into space to do surveillance. Think about the places that we choose to live, like how we make decisions about the neighborhoods we're going to live in or uh, the careers, perhaps even the jobs that we're going to take. Think about the resources that we spend on health care or just getting healthy, um, on medications, on examinations. Think about how we monitor the weather, um, how much we pay attention to global markets and try to predict and hedge ourselves against those uh, market failures. It'd be interesting for you personally, and you may have some time at your table this morning, to reflect on how your own life decisions as a man have hinged on trying to... um, Uh, trying to uh, achieve some measure of security. Trying to achieve some measure of security so that you don't have to wait until the rope breaks to know that the rope is close to breaking. I want to talk about that this morning because I think it's a good angle to take on the passage that we're going to read about in John's Gospel. And I think the issue of wanting to feel safe, wanting to be secure, of risk-averseness in some ways, is pertinent for all of us. And I want to kind of get ahead of things for a moment this morning and just say from the outset that a desire for security is not bad. It's human. To want to be safe, to be shielded, to be protected is not evil. It's not wrong. It's not immoral. 
However, and I think you could probably know this, right? You've seen it happen before. The, the desire for security can be incredibly selfish when it's misplaced. And in the process, it can deeply damage our capacity to love others as Jesus Christ has loved us. So this morning, I want you to see how the love of Christ reveals the meaning and practice of true security in our, in our passage. And what I want you to see is that the opposite of security is not risk. Okay, I'll say it again. The opposite of security is not taking risk. The opposite of security is being controlled by fear. The fear of losing something that we cherish, whether that's our standard of living, our control over our situation, our health, our children's best interests, whatever it is. And those fears may at times be justified, but I have a hunch that if you're here this morning, that you don't want to be a man that's controlled by fear. <laughs> you don't wake up and say, gosh, if I could only be controlled by fear. I've heard someone say that the best way to really feel secure is to be in solitary confinement in Alcatraz, right? No one, no one can touch you there. <laughs> but you don't want to live in a prison. True security frees us from the prison of fear. It gives confidence in the face of risk, and it grows our capacity to love as Christ has loved us. We're going to get all that from our passage this morning. Let's read now John chapter 4, verses 1 through 30. This encounter with a Samaritan woman. And let's talk through it together. Be prepared to be challenged based on who Jesus is and what he does here in this encounter. You should have the passage in your handout this morning. You'll always have that. If you don't know, if you don't have a Bible or know where things are in your Bible, just come. John 4, 1 through 30. John writes, Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. And Jesus said to her, give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. Where are you going to get the living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well. He drank from it himself as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. And Jesus said to her, Go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying, I have no husband, for you've had five husbands. The one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know, we worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming, and is now here, 
when the worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit. Those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to Him, I know that the Messiah is coming, He who is called Christ. When He comes, He will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am He. Just then His disciples came back. They marveled that He was talking with a woman. But no one said, what do you seek or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into the town and said to the people, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? And they went out of the town and were coming to him. This is God's word. Let me pray for us now and ask him to teach us his word. Father, we thank you for your word to us this morning. We thank you for this encounter that John has recorded, that you've um, empowered and given John um, the eyes to record for us, Father. We pray that that you, would, um, that you would give to us out of the fullness of who Jesus is, O oh Lord, and that you would give us the water that Jesus has come to give us. Um, we pray, Father, that, um, uh, Lord, that your Spirit would, would work in exactly the ways that we need you to work this morning. In Christ's name, amen. So I want to look at the encounter this morning um, and flesh some things out, and I want to do so uh, through three basic points. Number one, I want you to see where Jesus goes, where Jesus goes. Number two, what Jesus says, and finally, what he gives. Where he goes, what he says, what he gives. All right? First, where Jesus goes. So you'll notice our passage says that upon learning some news, that Jesus leaves Judea and departs for Galilee. In verse 4, John is bold enough to say that he had to go through where? Through Samaria. He had to go through Samaria. So just a basic geography lesson this morning. Judea is in the south of Palestine. That's where he's coming from. Galilee is to the north, and Samaria is sandwiched right in between. Now, technically speaking, Jesus did not have to pass through Samaria. There were two other options. One was the inland route that circumvented Samaria to the east. That was along the Jordan River. The other was the coastal route that circumvented Samaria to the west, and that was along the, you know, the Mediterranean coast. What a a pretty walk, right? So technically, he didn't have to go that way. And unless, unless you were really in a rush, if you were Jewish, you just didn't go through Samaria. You did, you did not go through Samaria. To the Jews, the Samaritans were an inferior, mixed-raced people. The Samaritans were partially descended from the remnants of the ten tribes of Israel that had been ta- taken into captivity centuries before in Assyria. They were also partially ascended from the Gentiles. Once the Jews were taken into captivity, those tribes, they intermarried with the Gentiles. And so to the Jews, the Jews really resented the Samaritans even more than the Gentiles, the pure Gentiles, because they saw the Samaritans as polluting the bloodline of the patriarchs. The patriarchs were Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Israel. And here the Samaritans were intermarrying, and they were, they were mutts. They were ethnic mutts in many ways. And to say that, uh, to say that Jesus had to go through Samaria, when geographically he had other options, could only mean one thing. That Jesus was constrained, not by geography, but by the will of God. That the love of God constrained Jesus. That is what sent him into Samaria. He was constrained by the mission 
that God had sent him on to go into this polluted land. And you'll notice in the text this morning, you'll see that not only did he go through the land, but he chose to stop in perhaps one of the most famous and sacred places in all of Samaria. That was Jacob's well. And you can think of the area around Jacob's well as kind of the, I mean, this is a bad illustration, whatever, you know, the National Mall in D.C., all right? So that when you're there, you can sort of look around and see all of these famous, important national landmarks that matter to the people there. So in the background of where Jacob's well was, was Mount Gerizim. She'll refer to it as this mountain. Mount Gerizim is where Moses, uh, um, uh, he, he blessed Israel in Deuteronomy. Right? Lots happened at Mount Gerizim. The field, right? the field that, um, that, uh, that Jacob had given to Joseph was right in the foreground there, and here is the well. And one important sort of note this morning um, about the Samaritans is the Samaritans only observed the first five books of the Old Testament as authoritative. Those are called the Pentateuch. So Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, that was their Old Testament. Everything after there, they didn't, sort of, they didn't, they didn't think it was canonical. They didn't think it was Scripture. And so the patriarchs, the, the ones mentioned here, Jacob and Joseph and Moses, and their history in this land was extremely special for the Samaritans. And that's where Jesus went. His mission carried him to this special place of this foreign people. And notice that John says he didn't just go to this place. What does it say? He sat down. He sat down there alone. His disciples were gone. He was an ethnic minority, out of his own zip code, out of his own neighborhood, in a place where, according to his own traditions, he was at risk of becoming ritually unclean himself. And Jesus, sitting there against all these other cultural divisions, he develops a relationship with a Samaritan woman that would lead to the gospel being received by our whole town. And later John tells us that, that Jesus is willing to stay with these people for two days, so he's not in a rush at all. And I just want to start this morning by having you put yourself in the shoes of Je- the sandals of Jesus, okay, if you can for a moment. Put yourself in, in his shoes. He is alone. He is a minority. He's in a hostile place, a land that his people considered polluted. And he doesn't just rush out. He sits down. When is the last time that you remember intentionally putting yourself in a place where you felt that uncomfortable? Some of you will know who Trey Hill is. Uh, Trey Hill has been in our community for a long time. He's our director of of urban missions here at PCPC, new director. Um, Years ago, God called Trey to start a ministry called Mercy Street uh, to minister to poor neighborhoods in in our city, especially West Dallas. And Trey and Melissa, his wife Melissa, felt that if they were really going to to love the people of West Dallas, that they needed to do so in relationships. That that it was relationally important that they were there. And in order to really establish strong relationships, they had to not just sort of pass through West Dallas often, they had to sit down there. And so Trey and Melissa made a decision to move their whole family there, and they've lived in West Dallas now for years as minorities there. Now, um, we're not all Trey Hills, right? But Trey talks about the temptation for us to all think about that ministry 
can be a drive-by affair. He jokes that at Thanksgiving, people drive through West Dallas, maybe you've heard him tell the story before, West Dallas, and they throw turkeys over the fence. And they pat themselves in the back for doing mercy, right, for ministry, and they get out of town as fast as they can. Jesus shows us here that real love is not transactional, it is relational. Real love is not a transaction. It is a relationship. It's not throwing a turkey over the fence. (laughs) It is sitting down in a place that poses often a cultural risk for us, that challenges our level of comfort, and it's being willing to develop relationships on someone else's turf. On someone else's turf. Now, I'm not saying this morning that you should ignore your own neighborhood. It's just to say that if we never get outside of our own neighborhoods, then how is following Christ really any different than just observing the status quo? You see him having to go through Samaria because that's where his mission took him. Where Jesus goes shows us that love involves a certain amount of risk, cultural risk. Next, I want you to see what, consider what Jesus says. What does he say to the woman? Well, notice that the conversation begins in an obvious way. And, and that's it's sort of, I think it's important to sort of note that. Um, Jesus begins the conversation by talking about um, water. And I, I just want to just point out that he doesn't skip the small talk. So here's a nod to small talk, both for those who love small talk and who make their living in small talk, right? And for those who hate small talk and hate being around it. Jesus is willing to talk about water. He starts the conversation with what they have in common. And though this conversation will go to different places, it basically starts with, who do you like in the Super Bowl, right? Um, The flu is really bad this year. I hear it's supposed to rain today. Can you give me a drink? Can you give me a drink? Something that they can obviously connect on quickly. Now, the more significant thing about that question is what it demonstrates to the woman. When Jesus asked this woman for a drink, the, the way that he is leading into this relationship is he is putting himself at her mercy. Okay, now this is important. The encounter right before this in John's Gospel is an encounter with a Jewish Pharisee named Nicodemus. A Jewish Pharisee in that land was at the top of the respect ladder. You could, I mean, he, it's, you respected him. He walked through town and he commanded your respect. A Samaritan woman, a divorcee with five husbands, at the bottom of the ladder. <laughs> and what John is showing us is not only has Jesus come to minister to the whole ladder, the whole ladder, but he is willing not just to go to the bottom, but to go to the bottom and look up to this woman and to tell her that he needs something from her. You see that? Jesus leads not with her need, but with his need. He is willing to expose his own need, his own weakness, and ask her for help. The Messiah honoring this woman's dignity and asking that she would help him, and it totally throws her off. See what she says? How is it that you, a Jew, ask me for a drink, a woman of Samaria? So here's the other kind of risk that Jesus models for us. Not only the cultural risk of being willing to sit down and build these relationships out of his own neighborhood, but also the emotional risk of going first and exposing his own weakness. And showing very quickly that he is willing to trust her before he ever invites her to trust him. You see that? He is willing to trust her to get him a drink before he ever invites her 
to trust him. A remarkable moment to consider that he leads that way. And as uncomfortable as that can be, notice how Jesus presses the awkwardness even further to get to the woman's heart. How many of you love our awkwardness? You seek it out. You just sort of are really comfortable around awkwardness, okay? So, so he, you know, like, being with Jesus in the gospel is, he's okay with awkwardness, right? And he continues to press this question into personal places that are, can you imagine being there, right? Can you imagine all of a sudden going from talking about a theological reality that, that you know, there's someone who's come to give living water to saying, hey, you got five husbands? Tell me about that, right? That's exactly what he does. He begins to peel the, uh, the onion back a little bit. And, and let me say this. It's very clear in the conversation that Jesus taps into uh, things that you don't have. He taps into the fact that he, Jesus is a man who knows things. All right, can we say that? He's a man who knows things. Um, he taps into his uniqueness, his omniscience. He looks at her and he knows things about her immediately that would take most relationships days, weeks, months, even years to get to. But the point that I want you to see here is that the direction of the conversation from Jesus to this woman to love her moves in the direction of her heart. It moves in the direction of her heart. What is a heart? The heart is the innermost sanctuary of a person. The heart is the place where things about you are exposed, your fears, your desires, your loves, the things that you care about most, the things that we try to protect often other people from seeing. And Jesus' intent on going there, see, he peels back this onion. He starts with water and material realities. And he peels back that onion and then starts to talk about geography, ethnicity, race, you know, these things that are all of a sudden awkward there. Then he peels that back and he talks about theology. And then from theology, he goes right to the reality of her own shame and failure. Now, just read the story again. Read, read verses 15 through 16. Can you see the non-secutor there? That he goes from literally saying, so, so the, the springs of living water comment is a comment that comes from Isaiah. Where Isaiah says that, that God will send someone to reverse the curse of barrenness in the world and to bring life, to bring refreshment to the whole world. He goes from talking about general theological principles to immediately talking about marriage failure. What is the connection between those two things? Well, the connection is her heart. The connection is this woman's personal story, who she is. And that's what he's after. What Jesus is saying here between verses 15 and 16 is that these husbands, these failed marriages are the wells that this woman has personally visited all her life, searching for springs of living water that only he can give. You know, uh, many of you, let me, let me take that back, erase that part. All of us, all of us can relate to what's going on here. All of us can relate to searching for fulfillment in all the wrong places. All of us can relate to visiting the wrong wells. Have you visited the wrong wells before? The answer is yes. And I just want you to see that not once does Jesus condemn her longing. Not once in talking to this woman does Jesus attack her stance on marriage and divorce. He gets underneath all of that. And he essentially says, look, what you've been looking for in the arms of men, what you've been looking for in the arms of men, security, adoration, meaning, 
Only I can give that to you. It's really important. Not only does Jesus here take on the cultural risk of loving people outside of his neighborhood, not only does he take on the emotional risk of leading with his own weakness, but Jesus takes on the relational risk of entering into the complicated mess of this woman's life and not just preaching to her broad theological truths about the kingdom of God, but applying those truths to the particulars of her story. It is risky, it is risky to begin involving yourself in the brokenness and shame in hearts of other people. It is risky. It'll risk your time, your energy, your attention. That mess will get on you too. And here we find Jesus doing that very thing in relationship with her. Finally, this morning, I just want you to see what he actually gives um, to end the story. And so what does he give? What is the water that he provides this searching woman? So the interesting thing to note here that's in the background is that, I mentioned this before, and it'll, it'll come back now, that um, the Samaritans only observe the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch, um, as their scripture. And in the Pentateuch, the, you know, the Genesis is really about four characters. We always think about Genesis as being about sort of the, you know, the way the world started. Well, that's only like the first few chapters. Genesis is about Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, essentially, and Joseph, and Joseph's brothers. All right. So four, four characters. Um, Exodus is basically about Moses. Those are your patriarchs, essentially, right? And do you know that in those first five books of the Bible, that on three different occasions, a man goes searching for his bride at a well? Do you know that? So if you think back, maybe you know the Bible stories that, um, that Moses meets Zipporah at a well in Midian. Um, who else is it? Uh, um, that uh, uh, Jacob meets Rachel at a well. That Rebecca meets the servant of Abraham at a well when that servant's fent, uh, sent to find a bride for Isaac. That's really important. Wells were like the singles hangout of that day, man. Everyone went to a well. You came back with a ring on your finger. You were married, you know. And what's more obvious in John's gospel is that just two chapters before this, Jesus does his first miracle, performs his first, first miracle at a wedding. And the miracle that he performs is he, he you know, he... We, all, he makes the wine keep flowing. The party keeps going, right? The idea there is that Jesus has come to keep the festivities going. And then right before this, John the Baptist says, you know what? I am not the Messiah. He tells his followers that. I'm the friend. And then he says this, the true bridegroom has come. You hear the language there? The true bridegroom has come. The Messiah, the true bridegroom has come, and he has come seeking his bride. What does John want us to see? He wants us to see that here at Jacob's well, here in polluted Samaria, the bridegroom of God has come to find his bride. And who does God choose to be his bride? Well, it's not who you would think. He has not come to woo a pure Jewish virgin. No, God has chosen an unchaste Samaritan divorcee an adulterer according to the law, a woman that has spent her whole life in the arms of another, uh, other men. Jesus chooses this woman to be his bride, and he chooses to make himself the husband who will finally love her, the well that will finally sustain her. 
As the conversation continues, the temple that will finally reconcile her and give her sanctuary with God. What Jesus is giving this woman finally and fully is himself as the source of her longing, himself as the source of her true security. You think about all the places that you've you've sought or been tempted to seek security, meaning, acceptance, adoration, approval, whatever else. You know, a big part of the story is to say that those wells, wherever those are for you, will never prove enough. If it's romance, if you look for those things in romance, then like this woman, you'll just jump from one person to the next. If it's work, right, there's no final deal that will placate you. If it's money, there's always another bottom line or a goal to meet. If it's adventure and personal freedom, then you're a slave to the next experience or horizon in the fear of actually one day becoming attached. If it's approval, you're always weighing your performance and searching for the next word of affirmation and so on. There are lots and lots and lots of wells out there, aren't there? And the fallout from all of that, the fallout from looking for springs of living water and all those other wells is this life that is oriented towards buffering ourselves and mitigating risk. It's a life that's oriented towards protecting whatever our own version and vision of comfort and ease is. Not a life of love like Jesus has lived. And what Jesus is showing us here is really the only way to love like Jesus is to know yourself loved by Jesus. The only way to really love like Jesus is to know yourself loved by him. To know that whatever the risk that your security is finally in him and that he is the true well from which you were made to drink forever. And then notice what happens in this woman's life, right? Jesus says that like whoever drinks of this well, that springs of living water will, will what? Will rise up and begin flowing. It'll burst out of a person. And so look at what the Samaritan woman does after the encounter. The Samaritan woman goes back to her village where, where she is well-known, right, like for all the wrong She's popular for all the wrong reasons, okay? She goes back to her village, her, immoral, her immorality known, and she goes to the village elders, and she says, come and meet this man whom I'm convinced is the Messiah. And don't you know they were thinking, who are you? Who are you? And she takes the risk. She tells them, and that in doing so, the whole village comes to meet Jesus to trust in him, and she goes down in history as the first missionary to the Samaritan people. Pretty great. Pretty great transformation. Pretty great encounter. All from a willingness to find herself, her security in the arms of this Messiah. May the love of Christ free us to be like her. May the love of Christ anchor us in terms of who he is called to be and what he has given us as well. Let me pray for us this morning. Father, we thank you for this encounter. I pray, O oh Lord, that you would challenge us. And Father, challenge us not to be risk-averse, but to, to do the things that Jesus did, Father. Um, Lord, to take cultural risks, to take emotional risks, to take personal risks, Father, material risks, whatever it is that are, are wise risks, Lord, under your authority and care. And we pray, Father, that, um, that you would once again convince us that you are the true well from which we are made to drink. Give us security in the name of your Son, we pray. Amen.